You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So we're in the middle of July. It's hot outside. And it's hot here too. <laughs> I mean, Indiana hot is Indiana hot, but Simi Valley hot is hot, right? I mean, it's okay. Well, let's use real numbers. It's 88 degrees, but it's muggy. We don't really get a lot of humidity. So yep. we're issuing an excessive heat watch. <laughs> it tends to be pretty swampy here too in the summer. Indiana gets pretty steamy. Yeah. Sure. But as we were talking just before I hit record, we were talking about order accuracy rates and shipping lead times and other things. And we're in the summer. We normally see a bit of a summer slump. We're seeing that summer slump again this year. It's a little sharper than it's been in the previous few years. But also we've been going through enough growth the past few years that we're not measuring against a stable trend line. We're measuring against the feel of constant acceleration. That's right. And so everything exists in this kind of weird relative framework. And we're making changes and lean improvements and staffing changes. All kinds of things are happening. So it's not just you're shooting at a moving target, you're moving and shooting at a moving target. That's right. And so the gut feel of how it's going isn't necessarily that accurate. But I said, the thing that I really care about, the numbers that I look at on a day-to-day basis are not primarily gross revenue per day, although I do check that on a weekly basis to see if the week's been trending up or trending down. And normally the trend is we see higher order volumes on Fridays and Saturdays. Our orders trend higher in the evening rather than during the business day because we're selling a thing that most people are buying for personal use. They're not buying it for their company. And so we get a lot of orders after business hours. People are home. They've watching some Netflix. They get their phone out. They shop around on the internet. They buy themselves a holster. So we typically see more orders after 5 p.m. Eastern, and we see a lot more orders on Fridays and Saturdays. But in looking at the overall gross revenue per day, the trend in summer is usually down, and it is right now as well. But we finally have a much larger data sample size to look at our shipping lead times and our order accuracy. And in our morning meeting on Wednesday, I got these numbers out because we just spent some time pulling a bunch of CSV data out, sorting it, doing stuff, throwing some things in pivot tables, looking at comparative things month by month. And our average from January to now with over 18,000 individual orders shipped was a 98.4% of orders shipped in one or two business days. And it was about a 50-50 split, about half the orders shipped same business day and the other half shipped next business day. And that, to me, I'm super happy with that. That is exactly the kind of promise we want to be able to make and maintain to our customers that we keep things in stock, stuff is on the shelf, we process orders promptly, and we're not just going to sit on your order. The two things that are in there that impact the one to two day lead time is anytime we have a customer whose address throws an error in our shipping software, it says this address is incomplete or this address cannot be verified, not found, whatever. We always put those orders on hold and we contact the customer. We don't ever just say, ah, well, they're the one that typed it in. Sometimes it's as simple as there's an obvious typo. Mm -hmm. Like they accidentally autofilled and the name of their city and state is crammed into their first address line and it's freaking out. So oftentimes you can cure those addresses with just a little tiny bit of editing, but sometimes you'll get something where it just will not take it. And until you hear back from the customer, 
we are not going to fire off 300 bucks worth of product in the mail to find out if that's a good address. Hmm. So those are the ones that most typically roll over second business day because we often don't hear back from the clients promptly, even though we normally email them the same day they order. Orders that came in last night, all the emails about address problems were in their inbox by 10 a.m. today because that's the first thing we do at the start of every day. After we 3S, after our morning meeting, we go, we have pre-applied filters and ship station. We sort all the orders by carrier. We pull out all the ones that have any kind of address variation problem, and we contact all those customers immediately. That's the main thing that throws off our percentage of one to two day shipping from being even higher. That's and then interesting. In that number of orders, our first order accuracy rate is 98.6% year to date. That's awesome. And I'm super proud of that. That is better than we've ever done before. And it's the first time we've had that volume of data that we can look back at and really dig into and see the details. And we just started using Freshdesk as our customer service software Hmm. earlier this year. Didn't start at January 1. I think I started it in early February, late January. I actually stopped by John Saunders' shop in Ohio. I was in Ohio for a business trip and stopped in and saw him for an hour or two. And we were talking about customer service. And while I was there, I was like answering a customer service email from my phone. And he's like, so what kind of software do you use? I'm like, oh, they're just in my email inbox on my phone. He goes, you've got to get out of that. (laughs) And so after that five-minute pep talk from John, I drove home to Indiana and I immediately opened a Freshdesk account, set it up, started creating templates, started creating filters. And that's been great. It's allowed me to hand off almost all of our customer service to my shipping and fulfillment employees because most of the things we deal with are not unique, one-off, never been seen before. Most of them are essentially FAQs. And we try to provide the answers on our website, but people often don't really know what the question... Oftentimes, they don't actually know what the question they're asking really boils down to. Mm-hmm. And so they ask a vague kind of series of questions that really have one underlying or two underlying issues at the core. And so as I've trained the employees and given them more customer service scripts to work from, it gets easier and easier for them to problem solve that on their own. But Freshdesk has been great for handling customer service, but it doesn't give me hard numbers on how many of these customer service tickets were a result of us misshipping something. Mm-hmm. And so in ShipStation, what I actually look at is how many orders did we have to issue any follow-up shipment on for any reason? And that's a little bit of an imprecise number because it includes voluntary exchanges where the customer's like, oh, I got the black belt. I actually want the tan belt. I'd like you to send me the tan belt along with a prepaid return label for the black one and I'll send the black one back. We're pretty laid back about that. Our customers are generally honest. We don't get a lot of people trying to play the system and keep free stuff. And so most of the time we'll supply a prepaid return label, we'll send them the thing they want and they can send the first thing back. But with any order shipment errors plus exchanges combined, we were still at 98.6% of orders only needing a single shipment to be good. And that is outstanding. That is the result of moving everything over to being scanned Mm -hmm. and not relying on anybody reading and interpreting packing slips in order to pick orders. And that's been life-changing for us. We didn't have any picking scanning going on this time last year. And now 100% of what we have on the retail shelves is all coded and all scannable. Yeah. That's such a huge advantage when you systematize that. Our businesses are very different. I would say venture to say opposite because we have virtually no sales on the weekends, nothing after 5 PM. Everything comes in Monday through Friday, typically online starting at 5 AM, <laughs> 8 AM Pacific. 
when it tapers off around three. We're on Freshdesk also, and it's such a huge game changer. So I don't know if you know their top tier. They have a new AI engine called Freddy. I haven't and messed with that at all. Yeah, it's worth playing around with because, yeah, we have the same like 47 questions. And so we plugged in all our questions. We used to have a <laughs> spreadsheet with tabs at the bottom in Google Sheets. And so, oh, here's that question again. Go to the SmartVac tab. Oh, there's the question. Let's drag that to the top. And we count how many times it's been asked. We sort it that way. Copy, paste. That was fine when it was one or two guys. Now we have four guys on tech support. And then the, the tricky thing for us is when people ask questions, technical questions, and then also ask for quotes or pricing, although we have all our pricing up front on our website. Yep. And so that's where we would have conversations drop off because it was squarely in the hands of Carlos, my chief tech support guy. And then Manny would not get any information because he sees it tagged as Carlos. And it just, it was a mess. And so we've really loved Freshdesk and the ability to not just use templates, but I read a stat the other day that most customers, I want to say in the 70%, will opt to search a knowledge base rather than call or email first. And I'm right there with them. I'm not going to look for a phone number. So yeah. Yeah. There are some pretty stark demographic shifts in how our customer base handles because we have a very clear minority slice of customers who will email us and say, I couldn't find a phone number on your website. I have a long, complicated question. I want to talk to a real person. Mm. And oftentimes, our response to that is we have a pre-made template that basically says, hey, thanks for reaching out. We understand you'd like to talk to somebody on the phone. However, we handle customer service by email because helping our clients solve their issues with the gear almost always involves sending and receiving photos, videos, and links. Mm. And we need to be able to provide you those digital resources and I can't give them to you over the phone. Mm -hmm. When you're describing problems with how you're using a piece of gear that you're going to wear, trying to articulate that over the phone, oh, yeah. it's just it just turns not into 20 questions, but like 200 questions. can imagine. And it's way, way faster. Although some customers, they get kind of insulted. They're like, they get their holster and they say, hey, I got my holster and it doesn't fit right. It used to be You'd ask a few questions, email back and forth a few times, and now it's always straight to anytime somebody reports that something doesn't fit their firearm properly, we ask for front and back photos of the holster and front and back photos of the firearm out of the holster. Mm -hmm. And overwhelmingly, what we find is that either there's an, a small aftermarket accessory on the gun, an aftermarket latch or lever or something, or they have slightly misunderstood the compatibility and they have the 2.0 EZ model, not the 2.0 shield model or something mm. where they've gotten a slight bit of confusion about what model they actually have and what it's compatible with. And the easiest way to resolve that is just show us what you actually have. Mm -hmm. And occasionally customers get annoyed by that. They're like, I know what I've got. I'm not going to send you photos. I'm like, I... Yeah. And usually the best way to deflect that without saying... I'm confident that what we sent you fits what we think it fits. And if it's not fitting what you have, then I think you don't have what you think you have. That's not a great customer service response. Right. But normally, and this is completely legitimate, what I normally respond with is the naming conventions that the firearms companies use for these very similar models is often confusing and ambiguous. And we've had a lot of issues with there being variations and so the easiest way for us to help you, because we have a range of firearms that we test fit with, 
the easiest way for us to replicate the issue you're seeing and make sure we understand it is for us to be able to know exactly which variant you have. Shortest path to that is a picture. And then we basically put the blame where it belongs, which is on the gun companies that do these ridiculously opaque and nearly overlapping naming conventions like sure. the Shield, the Shield 1.0, the Shield 2.0, the Shield Easy, which is a MP. different gun, MP the Shield, Shield Easy 2.0, the Shield, it's just like, it goes on and on. It's like, guys, why do we not just have like old school Smith & Wesson four digit number model designations? What model is this? Oh, this is a 5096. Unambiguous, very, very clear. They don't do that anymore. They want the guns to have like fancier names. So they had the Shield, and then the Shield Easy, and then they released an updated version of the Shield Easy, and they called it the Equalizer. And it's like wow. that doesn't—that's not even the same name in the same family. What are you doing? Yeah. Wow. So, do you have so yeah, can Fresh you, can Desk you, AI? How do you feel about like posting photos of the firearm on your website, saying this holster goes with this firearm? We do a compatibility chart because for a lot of the holsters we make, they fit multiple guns and having photos of all the different versions would be such a bulky resource to even skim over, especially on mobile, sure. that it wouldn't work. The dream eventually, and we've played around with this in the past, is essentially a guided question flow, not strictly a find the right product wizard because there are two ways for a customer to get to the thing they're looking for. One is to come to the website knowing exactly what we make and what it's called that they want and going to it. And the other way is coming to our website, not knowing what we make, but knowing what gun they own and browsing around to see which things are compatible. Yeah. And our website naturally is much easier to browse if you know exactly what you're looking for already. But that's not a great sales approach to expect customers to know what you call your holsters. Sure. And so we've played around with different kinds of question flows where we start off with what brand is your gun? What caliber is your gun? Are you right-handed or left-handed? Does your gun have an optic on it? Does it have a weapon-mounted light on it? Do you have aftermarket sights or any other kinds of, and go through different kinds of common accessories and gradually sort them down to Given all the information you've given us, here's what we have mm -hmm. of different styles of holsters that's compatible with that thing. Mm -hmm. But we've never gotten that to work the way that we want. And I'm hopeful that AI may give us a path forward to doing that mm -hmm. because otherwise you have to set up this gradually increasing in complexity branching series. It's a choose your own adventure book sure. at that point. Yeah. And thinking through all the possible combinations of what a person might have and then programming, you know, writing in the logic. So if they answer this way, take them to this question. If they answer this way, take them to that question. Mm -hmm. If you've got dozens or hundreds of SKUs, that just gets ridiculous. Right. Really, really fast. Wow. So this ability to sort, is that something that's currently exists on your site? And was that a custom program? It doesn't currently exist on our site. You basically have to choose by product family. You filter. And then from there, you can sort in drop downs by yeah. gun model and other specs. Right. Okay. It works, but I'm sure it could work better. Yeah. And I've always yeah. tried to keep as lean a product line as we can. There's always this constant tension of when people ask you for things, you want to make them for them because mm -hmm. you want the sale, you want the business, you want to make the customer happy. Mm -hmm. But also there are plenty of things that we have offered over the years that you put them out in the water and they sank immediately. Like mm -hmm. they never even broke even. Sure. On their mold development costs. And that's happened enough times in the past that 
it takes away the enthusiasm to go out and just speculate. I think we'll sell lots of these. Nah, until I have a solid inbox with 20 or 30 customers who are ready to order right away, I'm not even considerate. Yeah. I'm speaking at this, it's not a, well, it is a fusion event. It's DSI. There was one in, I yeah. say in North Carolina. So I'm speaking, it's about two, three hours up the coast, beautiful part of the state. By the time people hear this, it will be over, but I'm going to film my talk, but it's prompted me to do some housekeeping on our website because we're introducing five new products this year. And so when someone sees it, how does it fit in? So I'm thinking of doing this grid, like a chart, like three, four, five axis. Yep. A matrix. And then, yeah, matrix. And then that would be in the X axis. And then the Y, probably something like high density, high access, quick change, all these things, vacuum related, entry level, because we have the mini, which it's a very much a mainstream product, the mini pallet system you own. How many do you have? Four, six, eight? Yeah. Some, uh, yeah I think we have at least five. Yeah. Okay. So I developed that to try and introduce palletized high density work holding and quick change to the Tormach market and the style people and stuff like that. But it does have its place in mainstream manufacturing with guys with brothers and mini mills, things like that. And I know you've used it successfully for years, but where does that fit? Why would you choose a PPS over an MPS? Why would you choose a roto vice over a vice palette, new product that's coming out? And then really educating the customer. That's the trickiest part. And then once you've educated them, guiding them and confirming that's super important. I want that guidance. Hey, I've studied your website and your documentation for hours. I'm ready to purchase. I just want to make sure this is compatible. Yes yep. or no. And I think AI is the answer to that. We just need to keep digging. Yeah. It's one thing to try to anticipate the questions your customer will have and give them a one-way pre-made guide Right. where you say, okay, here's a 10-minute YouTube video. I'm going to walk you through and there is value in that. If somebody encounters your thing for the very first time and they're not necessarily looking to purchase right then, they're like, oh, Pearson Workholding, what mm -hmm. do they make? And right. it's like, here's a 10-minute overview of all the workholding we make. And it's broken down in categories. This is high-density palletized stuff. This is vacuum workholding stuff. And this is stuff that's optimized for fourth and fifth axis use. Mm -hmm. And then you can go through a quick breakdown of each of the things, its work envelope, its rough size and weight. You can include costing information, I guess, but the goal is just to get somebody oriented to this is the scope of everything. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actually providing consulting that's responsive to their input about the specific thing they're trying to make, even something like an AI-driven engine where they can upload a solid model. Yeah, I would love that. And it can just say, okay, you can fit six of this on the MPS. You can fit 11 of these on the PPS. You can fit one in each jaw on the Rotovice, or you can fit this or this or this. Right. That would be amazing. Yeah, it really would. And I know it's possible because you have companies that like do this on-demand machining. What's the big Send, one? cut, send. Yeah. Gosh, what's that engine? The guy is a software developer and he developed software to analyze step models and then see which would be the best way to, to machine it. And if it is machinable, then create a quote within seconds. It's almost like Zometry, but I'm, it's, I'm blanking on the name right now. But it's possible. It's possible to analyze a part and give either a red light, yellow, or green light, especially for our vacuum work holding, because we get people saying, hey, is this possible? And I would say, if it's the size of a dime, that's a red light. No, you cannot. If it's the size of a business card, that's a yellow light. You need to 
cut these out of a nested sheet and harness the total surface area of the entire nested sheet yep. to hold one part and then break through at the very end. Or just straight green light. This is the size of a book. Yes, please. That's easy. Yep. I feel like that's not that big of a reach for yep. a developer. And I just I feel like it's going to be a 2025 dream. So it's it's interesting. A friend of mine here in Indiana has a startup in the AI space that he's working on. And he basically branched it off from a previous company he was working at. And what's interesting to me is he's not inventing a new AI from scratch. He's working hard to develop and refine a very particular application that uses existing AI engines to deliver a very tailored kind of result in a certain space. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to quickly get to a spot where you can just upload an STP file into ChatGPT on your phone and have it tell you what kind of work holding you should use for it. Yep. Mm -hmm. But the potential to use AI tools combined with expert knowledge in a particular field to give you a uniquely well-indexed, well-constructed AI application, that has huge potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, can I switch gears? Are sure. you concerned about a uh, looming UPS strike? No, I'm not. We've discussed it a little bit, but less than 7% of our overall ship volume goes out UPS. Mm -hmm. And so if we need to, we'll just temporarily turn it off as an available option on the website. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we'll go FedEx, DHL, or US Postal. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, we're like 95% UPS. Light packages will go USPS. FedEx is terrible in our area. I'm almost convinced the drivers are from a prison release work program or something. They're showing up at 6 p.m. to drop off packages at a business or later. And there's been times where I'm like, okay, the kids are out. My wife's doing something late. I'll just work a little bit longer from work. I'm going to knock on the window at 640. And I go, dude, you got lucky. He's like, yeah, I got 16 packages for you. I'm going, what? you know, we're a business, right? <laughs> so. I don't know what's going on. We don't do enough volume with them. I've heard that FedEx will be limiting the number of packages that businesses will be picking up. We don't have a daily pickup with them just because of the bad service. We do drop-offs. So I'm actually concerned. I really don't have a good plan. This is the first time I've not had a backup plan because it's just totally out of my control. So yeah. have you heard of what other people are doing? Not really. So in the space that I'm in, most of our packages are one pound or under. Yeah. And so in that case, almost everything ships in padded mailers and we can use a lot of the like $10 USPS priority flat rate mailers. Right. And they give us that packaging for free by the pallet. We just pay for the labels mm -hmm. and it works out pretty well. We just know. recently started using DHL for a little bit of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's more of a premium service with a premium price tag, but has gone well so far. Yeah. We ship DHL exclusively out of the country. They're kind of the best and reasonably priced. I'm not a, a huge fan of government intervention in issues like this, but when Reagan stepped in and fired, I think it was the air traffic controllers. Yep. You had to do that because that crippled the nation. I do feel like this would be one of those exceptions where government should step in and say, okay, no, this, the ability to move goods is too important to this, the safety of our nation or just commerce in general. It's like shut down 2.0, essentially. And I, not many things concern me in business. There's always a way to get around it. But when the option B is going to limit 
your ability to do business with them. I don't know what to do from there unless we tell our guys, all right, let's do some road trips. We'll see how it plays out though. Yeah. When businesses are that big and so much stuff relies on them, I simultaneously have reservations about them just being free agents. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't trust government to actually able to fix it in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so I don't know. I don't feel like there's a good solution to that. Right. Around here, FedEx service is worse than UPS, pretty reliably worse. We've had <laughs> reliably worse. Reliably worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. We had at our old shop, we had a great UPS driver. She was always hustling. If she was running late, she would send me a text. If she had packages for us on her truck, she'd let us know. And she stopped at our shop often because one of our main vendors ships a lot of things to us, FedEx. And when we moved to the new shop, we're no longer in her area. And our current FedEx driver, I think we've had a dozen or more different FedEx drivers in the two years we've been here. So there's a lot of change over there and there's just not really any consistency. And we have the same issue. Also, Amazon Prime, I have told them a number of times, we're not open on Saturdays. Uh, Yeah. But I'm usually in for part of the day Saturday. And if an Amazon driver stops and you're here and you allow them to deliver you a package, their system's like, well, I guess they actually are open on Saturdays and just opens the floodgates for deliveries to be scheduled on Saturdays. And you can tell them later to turn it off again. But anytime that you're here and they actually deliver something, I'm not going to make a guy who pulled up, got out of the van, walked up to my door with a package in his hands and knocked on the door and I opened it. I'm not going to make him go away. Yeah, right. And so it's just, yeah. I have Amazon business packages just come to my house and then I drive them in. So I didn't know this. One of my guys took the initiative. We order from automation direct quite often yep. and they have free two-day shipping and it's FedEx only. And the FedEx was so unreliable. He just changed the address to drop off at his house. And so he gets packages at six, seven, eight o'clock at night from FedEx and he's a trooper. I'm like, wow, we're suddenly getting good service. He's like, yeah, at my home. And then I drive him in. <laughs> good job, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs> That's why you're at where you're That's at. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, do you have the wheel in front of you? We haven't spun. I sure do. We haven't spun the wheel in quite a while. Let's give it a whirl. Yeah. Books you're reading. Ooh. I just finished Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think the thing that's sticking out most about that is sharpening the saw, always working. Did we talk about the Lego? Yes. The Lego Lego job interview. Yeah. So I am in week number one of taking my guys through the reason of how I literally just smoked everyone. We had 39 minutes at the top end, 22 minutes, and I'm consistently in the 16 minute range. I thought the first time would be an anomaly. Okay, let me do it again. Two weeks later, I forget how it's built. Do it again. I'm right at 16 minutes. And it's all because of the preparation. 3S, you sweep, sort, standardize, get rid of the, the junk around you that has nothing to do with building a Lego. You sort. And the first thing I do is I go to the back of the Lego booklet and I see that black is the most common <laughs> brick. And so I don't touch those and I only sort out the other colors. So now I'm not over processing. And then you just build and the largest piece goes in your left hand and then you're plugging in the smaller pieces into that and that's building the sub assemblies you put it together. So 
it's being received well. Like guys are going, oh, wow, that's a good idea. I really, really didn't think about it. So it's really not because I'm a, an experienced Lego builder. It's because I took the time to sharpen the saw. Yep. So I was also thinking of having the guys start like a book club because we do have out of the 18 or so guys in the company, I would say six are pretty voracious readers. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, yeah, why not take them through this? And the responsibilities of these guys is very diverse. Some guys are kind of new hires. Other guys have been with me for years and years. And I think one of the books that I'm going to take them through would probably be that book that, uh, the, what is it called? The Six Types of Working Genius, which we spoke about earlier. Yep. I think that just has the most bang for your book for guys that really want to hone in on what they love and don't love. And to bring that awareness, I think that's going to be huge. So I think I'll reread it. Have you broached that subject with any of your guys? So I've had my two main managers, my operations manager and my production manager, both take the six types of working genius test. Mm -hmm. We haven't sat down and gone through the results at length. I do think it makes a lot of sense. There are some clear differences between us. Like I skimmed over our three comparative results and there are definitely areas where one of the three of us is strongest Mm. and finding how we have misassigned tasks and responsibilities when laid over top of that is probably the first step to making progress with it. We had our monthly Vistage chapter meeting yesterday. I was out all day for that. Mm-hmm. And we did a very similar exercise, actually. Some of the guys in that group have read the book as well, but this was a four quadrant exercise, which is things you love doing that you provide overwhelming value at. You could spend all your time on these going quadrant one. Things in quadrant two are things you hate. You dread these. You absolutely have to have these off your plate. And then quadrant three and four are things that you do, you're good at, but mm-hmm. somebody else should be doing them. Mm-hmm. Those two quadrants were fairly similar. But yeah, the things that ended up in the category that I love were all of a certain type. And the things that ended up in the category that I dread was all administrative stuff. Just Mm -hmm. reviewing our insurance policies, making sure payroll is set up, inputting data, just managing all that stuff in the background absolutely sucks the life out of me. Yeah. Well, no no one goes into business thinking, man, I want to really load up in five years on administrative duties. That's not what entrepreneurs do. No, they really don't. And I put together that list at the meeting. It wasn't just a list of list all the things you currently do and sort them into categories, but list all the things that happen in your company, Mm. whether you currently do them or not, and sort them into these four quadrants. And it was encouraging to see that a number of the things in that second quadrant of things I hate, dread, got to get off my plate were things that I have successfully gotten mostly or completely off my plate. I still have to keep a finger in that pie occasionally to check to make sure it's still warm, mm-hmm. but I'm not having to do those things on the day-to-day. And I have a clear plan for anytime a straggler or some task related to that category of thing, I've handed off basically all of our bill paying mm-hmm. to one of my employees. He has access to the company, to certain company bank accounts. He has access to the company PayPal. He's got access to all the things he needs to make payments to our vendors. But I haven't yet handed off invoicing our customers mm-hmm. to him yet because that originates out of our ERP system and it's got some other things going on that he doesn't have any experience really doing yet. And so I'm halfway through offloading the ARAP portion of the work. But every once in a while, we'll get a vendor who we haven't bought anything from in six or eight months. We place an order 
And that still comes to my email because we haven't updated them since he took over. He hasn't had any contact with them. And so even though that ball is mostly in his court, occasionally little flyers end up in my inbox and I've got to pop them over the net toward him and say, hey, Mark, this just came in. Add this vendor in this category. The contact person there is named Mike. Here's what we get from them. Here's the part number and go. Right. And he's good about batting cleanup and catching those things and getting them organized. And that's been great. That's been a huge load off my mind. Hmm. But still, it's easy to think that I don't have a clear handle on everything in the business. I said to Ben, my operations manager yesterday, I really want a comprehensive, just big bucket overview of the company so that anything that the company does has some placeholder on that list or chart yeah. so that no portion of the company can just fall through the cracks. Right. No, as, no opportunity for neglect. Yeah. It's just like I have packing lists. When I go on trips, if I'm going for business or going to visit family, whatever, I have a couple of different packing lists based on where I'm going and what I'm going for. And I just right. print a fresh copy off and then strike items out that I know I'm not going to need. And then I pack from that list and it goes in my luggage and I make sure that I bring everything back that I took with me. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I need to have a perfect list for every trip. It's just that looking at the checklist is going to prevent me from missing something obvious just because I'm having a dull moment. Yeah, absolutely. The have book, you, The Checklist have, have Manifesto found, is actually really good about that. Have you found that, especially when it comes to finances, it, there's a also another added layer of trust that you need to give up? That certainly was my story. Well, yeah, somewhat a layer of trust, more a layer of trust about discretion. Oh, because well said. Yep. Having somebody be able to see behind the curtain at all the ins and outs. And the way we have it segmented is there are certain accounts that employee who handles invoicing, who's handling our bill pay stuff that he doesn't see because they're company savings accounts and he doesn't transact out of them. Mm -hmm. Like our emergency fund, our emergency reserves, those are not accounts he has to interact with. Those accounts get topped up with monthly internal transfers that are scheduled and automated. He doesn't have to take any action to put money into those accounts, and he doesn't have the authority to pull money out of those accounts because they're emergency accounts. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't even see them. They're not on his dashboard. And the way that we currently have bill pay set up is he can create all the transactions and initiate them, but I have to hop onto my phone and just double click them, authorize them to be processed. Got it. And that works well because there isn't any ability for him to either accidentally or intentionally mistransact something. Mm-hmm. And it gives me some regular thing that I need to check in on, but it's very brief. I'm not going in and reading the monthly statements line by line by line by line. I have alerts set on my phone so that anytime transactions over a certain dollar amount are processed, I get a text. Anytime balances go above or below certain amounts, I get a text. And those kind of automatic tools where it's just like, you know, terrain, terrain, pull up if your plane starts getting too low, that's super helpful because you're not necessarily going to be looking in the right place at the moment the relevant info shows up there. That's right. What has been a big frustration to me, we bank with Chase as our primary operating accounts. We keep our emergency savings in a separate account with a separate local bank. But there are certain things that Chase does that they don't send you any alerts about. And we particularly ran into this processing ACH outbound payments to vendors where for some reason, Chase rejected the payment, declined to process it. Huh. And 
you would think that if somebody created a transaction and then I as the admin approved the transaction and then Chase for some automated reason rejected the transaction, that that's the sort of thing you should get an alert about. You should get a little flag notice in your notifications on the website. You should get a message in the Chase Secure Message Center, but nothing, just nothing, radio silence. And what happened is we didn't realize that it happened until a few weeks later and the vendor's like, so this is overdue. I'm like, oh, we paid that. I went back and looked and sure enough, it had been rejected by Chase the next business day without a peep, no notice to us. Okay. And we reprocessed it and it happened again. I'm like, okay, the whole point of scheduling these transactions online is that once I've scheduled them and authorized them, they're done. It's done. And I don't have to come back later to make sure the done thing actually got done. Sure. And so I actually went and had a meeting with my banker, Chase, and I was like, what is going on with this? And she spent some time looking into it and she eventually came back and said, I'm not sure why this got rejected twice. Wow. Okay. The Chase website frustrates me because they have, when you log into the homepage, they have a little uh, notification sort of flag banner area up top. Yep. And virtually every time you log in, there's always notifications up there, like a little, yeah. little flags lit and there's a little two or a three or a five. And those are virtually always Chase making you offers, trying to upsell you yeah. on another credit card or open a new account. That prime real estate at the top of the homepage when you log in they're not using it for actual notifications about your account. Mm-hmm. They're using it to try to sell you services. And actual messages about your account are buried two clicks deep in a sidebar menu. Mm-hmm. And that's so, so irritating and so mm-hmm. disrespectful to the customers. Yeah, You're like, oh, I've got notifications. And you click on it, it's like, we have an offer for you. I'm like, right. yeah. I would like you to offer me relevant notifications on my account, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like I you to about offer that. me information I actually want to use. Thank you. <laughs> I talked with that with my guy, Carlos, because he's a pilot. He and I are aviation geeks. And the, he calls it bitching Betty. If there's always a warning light or a tone that's beeping constantly, every time you get close to the runway, eventually you're going to ignore it until the point that that object is an actual uh, mountain or vehicle or another airplane. It's just a bad practice. Do you have your guy log in under a different account, like a yes. user account? Yeah. Yeah. That's we one have thing s- Chase does well, the account access. Well, yeah. We have several authorized users. So my bookkeeper, who's external to the company, has access and our accounts are linked to QuickBooks. Okay. So he can see transactions, reconcile credit card accounts. And we have just a running list. Anytime he sees a transaction that he's not sure how to categorize, we've got a spreadsheet that he just dumps it into. Ben and I check on that regularly and just add in the details. Oh, this is a new company we bought this or that thing from. Put that in this category. And so that works well. Mm-hmm. The small local bank that we use for our sort of our emergency funds is very helpful, very friendly. The banker is very responsive, but they don't offer nearly the level of mobile functionality or online banking functionality. Yeah. It's just yeah. they don't have all the tools. Mm-hmm. And so even though I don't have any affection for JP Morgan Chase, and I'm frustrated and insulted by the way that they treat me sometimes, they've got the tools I need. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's unfortunate, but true. Yeah. 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 One of the bank that carries my building loan, big bank, I'll leave their name out of it, but 
frustrating website. They're not a small local bank at all. They're a huge bank, multinational corporation. And it's just so difficult to do business with them. And their website, once you log in, it really looks like something that was out of the late 2000s, 8 to 08, 09. It's just a continual frustration, but it's one of those things that you just grin and bear it, I suppose. I've got money spread all over. I did that. It wasn't prompted by Silicon Silicon Valley Valley. Bank. Yeah. It's just, let's just spread it out just so I have better access. And then the ones that are bad, you cut them off. There was a bank that I was using, High Yield Savings, Vio Bank. Good enough rate at the time. It dropped off. And again, just not a great interface. Okay. Well, it's going right over to Lending Club. Lending Club holds on to your money for four or five days and you're not earning interest on it. So there's always something that's going to get you. But for me, it's a customer experience. And I hate that with Chase. And unless you go in and say, hey, on these notifications, I want email. I don't want text. On this, I definitely want text. Don't fill up my email inbox. Or yes, red alert, text, email, everyone, all hands on deck. Yep. That's just what those big banks offer sometimes. Yeah. As we've gotten bigger, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I had this funny thing where we started doing a whole lot more transactions on one of our accounts. It was actually, we started buying, in some cases, thousands of dollars of additional postage a day Mm -hmm. on a certain credit card that tops up our ShipStation account. Yeah. And both ShipStation and the credit card company like locked us down. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I'm getting, this is so-and-so from this and this security branch. Can you please give me a call? This is so-and-so from Chase. Can you please give us a call? Yeah. This is so-and-so from ShipStation. Please give us a call. And I'm like, guys, <sighs> okay, yes, fine. As I if pre- it's the first time they deal with something too. Like it's a well, business. We're buying postage. If one day out of the blue, all of a sudden we 10 x our purchase daily volume of postage on a particular card, yeah. I could understand a huge trend change like that triggering something. Sure. But once you bump into that a few times, you're always like, hey, what else are they going to suddenly turn off on me without warning? Right. While you're on vacation. (laughs) While I'm on vacation, like, oh, all of a sudden we're locked out of this or that. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if it were easier, more people would be doing it. That's what I can And there's certainly, there's plenty of fraud in the system. It's not as though they're reacting to a non-existent problem. It's a real problem. Sure, sure. It just feels like... When you're the person who's trying to do things correctly, yeah. you bump into every little guardrail that's designed to prevent people from jumping over the gate. And you're like, oh, come on. This is annoying. This is wasting my time. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, we, can't, that's good. we can't all just flow through. Yep. So I mentioned the book, The Checklist Manifesto. That's a book I've recently been reading. I just finished it a little while ago by Atul Gawanda. And it had a lot of interesting stuff. The main example in the book is they're talking about pre-surgical checklists that they tested out in a variety of hospitals all over Mm -hmm, the world. mm -hmm. And specifically, they were interested in how to build team cohesion so that the entire surgical team from the, the lead surgeon all the way down is on the same page about what the operation is, what they're going to do, what the patient risks are, what the patient profile is. And that everybody in there from the bottom up is empowered to stop the thing if they see a problem. Mm. If they see somebody improperly handled instruments and that there's a sterilization issue or somebody is not gowned or gloved or masked correctly, or what the surgeon says the procedure is going to be doesn't match what the chart says the procedure is going to be in some way, that it can be very easy for the lead surgeon to just dominate the whole room. Uh and have everybody afraid to speak up, but a checklist where different parts of the checklist are 
clearly the responsibility of a different person. Yes. Gives you the authority to be like, no, <laughs> right. We're not ready on this. And the kinds of gains you can see both in reduction of poor patient outcomes and disability and death, mm -hmm. but also just the increase in confidence as a patient going into major surgery is scary. Right. Knowing that there are the comedian Kyle Kinane has this great little bit about, he's like, I got on an airplane and I just glanced in the cockpit. Have you seen one of those cockpits? It's like a panic room full of buttons. It's like, all right, we're getting ready to take off. I got to flip this switch. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Not going to die. Not going to die. Don't want to die. Flip this big, don't die lever. He's like going through the cockpit. He's like, all this stuff, not going to die today. Not going to die today. Not going to die today. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Ooh, almost missed that. We definitely would have died. <laughs> And that idea that there's all these things, like you look at the cockpit and it is terrifying. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And knowing that there's a checklist that they go through, that it's not just one person glancing over the checklist and going, yeah, I did that. I did that. I did that. It's two people. Yeah. And one person saying this, and the other person goes, check uh -huh. this, check this, check. You don't have to have the world's best pilot to do the checklist correctly. Well, even the best pilots- Still Won't rely do it on without a checklist. It. You have a checklist that you memorize the first few steps. So when an engine goes out, you know steps one through six, kill fuel or set to relight or whatever it may be. But while you are doing those things, the co-pilot is getting the checklist out and you work through it. Yep. Yep. So yeah. no, we, I really, we, we're huge on checklists around Pearson. I really enjoyed in the movie Sully, that depiction in the cockpit of the scene, you know, they hit the birds, the engine goes out and he just goes, my airplane, my airplane, right. starting Your the controls. APU, APU. Right. And then the other guy just gets out the checklist and starts going through Yep. double engine failure, you yep. know, this to this, then relight and they're going through it. Yep. And there are lots of places like that, where even in my own little company, we benefit from checklists mm -hmm. and I should be creating more of them not to make busy work. Because it's easy to make checklists into busy work, but we mm -hmm. had a particular step. We have a big air shear we use to cut up our sheets of plastic, but the plastic comes in in four by four sheets, but it has a directional extrusion texture on it. It has mm -hmm. grain mm -hmm. and the grain orientation matters for the cosmetic appearance and also very slightly for the structural strength of the parts. Mm -hmm. If you crease the part in line with the texture, it's a little bit weaker than if you crease it, if you fold it perpendicular to the lines of the texture. Yep. It's a minor difference, but it's a difference that we care about. And so when you put a square piece of plastic up on the table and the plastic is black, it can be easy to misinterpret because the pattern, the texture is pretty subtle. Uh -huh. And so a number of times this past year, we had a job get started. And then we found out that the stock that had been cut down for that job was a mix of correct and incorrect grain orientation. Because as the person processed down the sheet, they weren't keeping track of that, or they put the sheet up on the table, rotated 90 degrees from normal and didn't catch it. Hmm. And then they produced a whole bunch of pieces of pre-cut stock that were the wrong length to width ratio, and we right. can't use them. And so we actually built a little checklist that now mounts right on the side of the shear, right where the operator stands, that before you start cutting plastic, you're checking thickness of the sheet, grain direction, verifying that you've got the right dimensions for the part based on the template. And then you double check the dimension you set the stop to, you cut your first piece, you verify it by overlaying the template on it. And we switched from using a list that had measurements to having a physical template in a bright color for every single standard pre-cut size. And that travels to the shear with the operator 
So you have it as a go, no go gauge. It shows you the width and length. It shows you the grain orientation, and it gives you the part numbers that use that pre-cut size. And that took the error rate on that stock prep step way down. It was great. We had a YouTube short that got lots and lots of hate. It was about our CNC grinder, which it's, uh, it's an automatic grinder. So it's not quite CNC. It's got a brain and it moves automatically. I said, if you have machinery that has a specific sequence, don't memorize it, label it. And it's like power on, chuck on, crossfeed on, pump on, wheel on, and it's A, B, C, D, E. And then when you're done, you just go backwards. Yep. I got so many comments going, this is stupid. Is this a joke? Is it April 1st? How about you learn how to run a machine? You know what? Yeah, absolutely. But those are the things that lean thinkers were going, I love it. That's beautiful. I don't have to clog up my brain with stupid things that are so easy to get backwards. If you turn on the wheel and it's got coolant on it and you're off to the side, you're going to get soaked. There's an imbalance because the wheel is going to be loaded. There's a specific order you want to do these things. Lean thinkers are the ones that make things easy and checklists make life so easy. You don't clog up your brain with stuff that really has no value in being in your brain at all. Yeah. The value of visual color controls is awesome. Matching things up. The green thing goes to the green place. The yellow thing goes to the yellow place. Yeah. I love that. But also using patterns we already know, ascending or descending numbers, alphabetical stuff. It's like, oh, I do A, then B, then C. That's really easy. Actually, right before we hopped on to record this episode, I made a lean improvement about you. Huh. Which was every time I create a new episode and I have to email you an invite, I always have to type in your email address. So I put a, a keyboard shortcut that gives me the J at Pearson Industries email address yeah. with just a couple keystrokes because- That's awesome. Why, why do it over? type that over and over again? <laughs> right. You know, the same it. way that I've got quick text replacement shortcuts on my phone for the company address- Yep. A, please send an email to our customer service team at this address. Like uh-huh. I, Those text replacement things are invaluable. They're Absolutely. so easy. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Anyway, great to talk to you. Have an Likewise. excellent weekend. We'll chat okay. next week. All right. Bye. See you.